Hello, I'm Sean. He's Teos, and you know what that means. This is another episode of Mastering Dungeons. Hey, Teos, I decided to switch up the uh, intro there a little bit. Yeah. How's it going? Uh, it's it's great. Uh, this has been a uh, interesting weekend for me, where we were picking carpets, and this was because I made the mistake of saying mm-hmm. to my wife, "You know what would be easy, rather than all of these things we've been talking about, what we want to do to shake up our house, is just get like one of those." carpets replace a carpet we have with another carpet i thought that would be easy it has led Mm. down the carpet rabbit hole uh it is Mm. we have so many swatches and things in our room and nothing makes sense and i don't even know what is anymore so i'm gonna end up with like fuchsia or something i have no idea it's totally confusing we're driving each other mad send help (laughs) yeah just when you get it just you lie on it and you just rub your face on it that uh so I've heard. So I've heard. Of course, I do that with most everything. So I have to be careful. <laughs> That's a good tip. That's one for the kids. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of tips, oh. uh, we, we do take listener questions and we try to answer them in, in all, as only we can, uh, which is sometimes intelligently and sometimes hmm. not. Yeah. But we'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes this week when we take a question first from the mighty Jerd via our Patreon Discord, who asks, how do you drive a story game when the players are reticent to bite on the hooks you give them? I'm trying to figure this out with my current group. They've been unraveling a large conspiracy, which they're heavily invested in. And this last session, they recovered a diary with an exposition dump giving them not only a location of operations for this elusive cult, but also the names of some of their leadership and direct links to the conspiracy they have been chasing this whole time. Me gives the PCs a diary detailing detailing locations of the cult, its lieutenants, and major plot beats. PCs, boy, that sounds dangerous. We can't tangle with the whole encampment. Let's wait for an NPC faction we've been working with to clear it out instead. <laughs> It could not be any clearer unless I labeled the name of the keep the cult is operating out of. Go here, castle. Huh. And I, I feel I feel you there, mighty Jared. I feel you. Uh, this isn't. This is actually a, quite a common problem, and this is why when you publish an adventure, play testing is so important. People say, well, how do you play test an adventure? Why do you play test an adventure? It's not really about the encounter balance, because especially at mid or high levels, there is no such thing as encounter balance in most adventures. You can look for the most egregious stuff. What's most important is seeing if the flow of the adventure makes sense. And something like this is something that you can pick up in a play test. Now, obviously, for your home game, you're not play testing it. Uh, you're just presenting it to the players. But this is one of those important things. And it leads to the importance of not just where in an adventure plot, but how, when, and why. Knowing that they are supposed to go somewhere is part of the task, but giving them a compelling, immediate, and necessary reason to go is just as important. And in this case, they may know where to go, but if unless there's a compelling reason to go right now or some hints about the best way to get there, mm-hmm. then there may be some hesitation, as in this case. 
What do you think, Tess? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, <laughs> there are a couple answers I could give to, to, to Mighty Jared. It's an excellent question. Um, uh, and I've played in his games. I know he, he runs a good game. Um, you know, you could really just label it, go here castle and just be like, there you go players, you know, <laughs> like I've done it for you. Now you don't have any questions, mm -hmm. but the other way to do it is like, you're kind of saying is, is there must be something that says to players who are cautious as this group clearly is it, there is a way for this to work. Right. And we've all seen movies mm -hmm. where, or novels, but especially movies and TV shows where the heroes, the protagonists, they do things that you're like, you would never try that. What are the chances you would get through the evil Nazis to get to the thing? Like that would just never work, but they try it anyway. And it's just cause, right? Mm -hmm. An adventurers league or organized play mm -hmm. adventures for any kind of game will often do this where you just go to, through the scene because that's what you know you have to do and it's a convention adventure. But in a home game, I think that's especially where it can fall apart where your players will go, this doesn't make sense. Like, I don't know why I would think I could take on this evil cult. And so it's not just saying, here's the go here castle, but, and by the way, you might be able to get in. So maybe there's something that you could add, like mm -hmm. a timetable, right? Like, like the, the notes, mm -hmm. the information includes the guard shifts or where the guard shifts can be found or, you know, and make sure that everybody's at the north gate for the shipment of ore that's coming in or whatever. Something that gives them a little bit that go, ah, wait, they're going to be over here. We might be able to go to that other side, right? Or, you know, need to get more guards for the rear entrance, right? Once you know your players are cautious and that they're, they won't just assume they'll survive, because some players do, right? Some players are like, eh, everything's always balanced. CR, encounters, I'm going mm -hmm. in, especially if you have GMs. But players may be scared you know, like I was as a player when I first started. And that's where you need that kind of extra, some, some extra hooks that gives them that real, this is plausible. This can be done. There is a way. Yep. And part of what Teos is describing here is sort of giving the players agency mm. while not giving them agency. You're giving them the illusion of agency, yeah. right? You don't want to say you have to go to go here castle or the adventure is just going to fall apart. But and what you like do is you say, not only did you, right. Not only you give them that schedule that Teos is talking about, you give them the tools that they need. So it's their idea, not your idea. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's adventures the hardest part, that right? Start, that balance. That, that is that is exactly the hardest mm -hmm. part, especially in a home game where things are often looser and you're playing off of your players. It's extremely difficult, but that's where you want to know what their friction points are. And, and on the Discord, I sort of said, you know, I wonder if there's one of the players that you could take aside, someone you feel close to, and you could say, hey, when, when I gave you guys these clues, I thought you guys were just going to go straight in there, but you didn't. What was mm -hmm. it that really kind of made you pull back? Because the more you can understand their friction points, you can balance sort of their friction, their worries against the compelling factors that you can put in. Um, and, and, and you can do a number of things, right? Without spoiling, you can do things like add a time pressure, right? You know, we will, mm -hmm. the ritual will begin in one day. The, you know, so you don't have time to get to the other factions for help or go back to the king and request, you know, that the princess come along with you as an extra guard or whatever. You know, all these kinds of factors, you, you force their hand a bit. Um, uh, the caravan heads out in an hour, right? Whatever. And then, well, let's sneak onto the caravan. That's got to be the way in, you know, let them let them figure it out. 
Mm. But but uh, but with that urgency. Yeah. The old trope of starting the campaign with the characters being prisoners and with no equipment and mm -hmm. it's this is a similar thing. Hmm. Uh, right. If you don't want to do it like in Out of the Abyss, and I knew my players would would be okay with it, but I didn't want to put them in that position. So we had a pre-session where they were approached by the Harpers mm -hmm. who said, listen, we know that there is this prison ring in the Underdark, and they're starting to come under the surface to take people. What yeah. we need you to do is pose as captives to be captured and taken so you can be taken into the very heart of the operation and then you can get out and let us know what's going on where these right. factions are where the prisons are etc and that put the agency back in front of the players mm -hmm. okay now we will help you create a false skin on your back where you can hide your thieves tools <laughs> cool. and you can use magic that we give you to secure a dagger somewhere so you have weapons and mm -hmm. you have the tools that you need the basics at least so when you do escape you'll be able to survive better and that turns it all on its ear and it makes yeah. it much more palatable and even fun hmm. right now it's our choice to be captured and have to fight our way out with less equipment than we normally would so yeah, put the agency cool. in the player's hands yeah no, it's great. I'm, I'm marveling at your technique. And, and, and you talked about this before, but it's still like that idea of like the sneaking the weapons on. It's really easy to think well, the whole point is to be weaponless. But really, you give most character classes a dagger and they're in the same situation of feeling quite weaponless until they get their hands on, you know, enemy mm -hmm. weapons and stuff. So it's really the same thing. But you're giving them that agency that they really want. And they're going in with a plan. Yeah, and, and maybe that's the thing for a group like this is to say to you know to have the faction in fact be on hand and say we can't send people fast enough. We need you to go in, but here's something you know we could do one of the following things to help you. Which 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 do you want? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it 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 makes it more organic, even though there's still manipulation happening on the part of the game master as the storyteller, but it's a manipulation that is much more palatable and yeah. spurs the imagination of the players how do you think you'll be you could sneak weapons in how do you mm, think yeah, that you could yeah. take advantage of some chaos there and and let them push the story in the direction that they want making them feel good about it that's great yeah yeah and and maybe it's something like yeah if they want to work with factions just to say that you could um Something like, you know, I could spare a couple people to mount a distraction. What do you want and where? Mm -hmm. and, and just yeah. something loose like that, right? Yeah. Yep. Adds a, adds a new dimension to the game. Helps even with world building on the character's mm -hmm. part because they can, uh, you know, say, we really need this. And then you as a DM say, oh, sure, there is that there. And you can make use of it. Uh, Good all around. Good for everyone. So thank you, Mighty Jared, for that wonderful question. And we will get to now a question from Selden Harry via YouTube. What games do you recommend for new GMs? 5e excluded. This is a tough, tough, tough question. I have been wrestling with this a lot recently. So many role-playing games 
whether they admit it or not, and very few actually do admit it, these games rely on a game master who already sort of understands role-playing games, the, the basic concepts, the flow, the game loops. Uh, and I've tried to evaluate role-playing games on on uh, their friendliness to brand new players and game masters, but I, I've, I already know role-playing games. And that negative capability that I need to remove the knowledge from my head to evaluate it is is difficult to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I have done recently is look at complicated board games in the in the role playing game sphere to see if those would be better stepping stones for new game masters. So take a game like Gloomhaven or Hero Quest or Mansions of Madness or Time Stories, where some of them can have a game master. Uh, some of them don't, but you could still act as a game master to help the players uh, navigate the rules. What this gives you uh, as a game master is experience in keeping track of several things at once while watching players' reactions to things. Mm -hmm. Because at its heart, that's what role-playing games are, right? You're just juggling different aspects of a game while also taking feedback. And if you can keep a mind on on the rules and keep a mind on the players, then you've gone a long way to learning how to GM. So sometimes a board game like that helps get the basics under your belt before you move on to a more free form sort of role-playing game experience. What do you think, Teos? You know, I, I thought about this question and I wanted to arrive at an answer and I, and I really didn't. Um, like, I don't know if it's better to start with any number of games I could choose from or to just run D&D &D or, or whatever, I mean, you know, like, I, I don't know. Like, it's a good question. I, I would be curious if you could somehow study, like, you know, take three DMs and put them through, like, one of them starts with Fiasco and one of them starts with, you know, Apocalypse and another one starts with D&D &D and and then have them all like run D, D later is one of them particularly better at running D, D or whatever your game of choice is you know if someone else starts with shatter on like mm -hmm. i i don't really know i i suspect that it, it has an impact but it might vary so much on so many other factors i don't know that there is a perfect game to start with and in general it should you know you're going to be the, the other problem is generally someone who's starting to dm they have a game they want to run <laughs> That's why they're here. Um, yeah. They they're like, wow, you know, this looks so cool. I want to run this um, or I just played this and I want to be a DM, too, which I've seen many times. So that's the game they want to run. And and so if it's, you know, Pathfinder second edition, doesn't matter how complex it is. That's the game they want to run. And what I tend to think is that a big part of it is really the scenario you start with and whether a starter set or whatever, there's some good clear on ramp that really can help you be a good DM. And I've seen that, you know, there was a one that uh, Chris Tulak put together one year where he just took one of the 4E intro starter set type adventures and he just wrote up a script for it where it was just really, and I've talked about this before, but it was just really simple, like roll some skills, then we're going to do a really quick, easy combat. And it just put you through the paces in a way that was very easy to feel capable and accomplished as a GM, no matter how new or old you were. You just felt good because everything was handheld. 
the adventure was speaking to you and telling you what to do. It was like an instruction manual. And so it all worked. And it wasn't the best scenario. And in fact, that was the part that I was sort of concerned about. I was like, I don't know that this is a very compelling story or scenario. But the truth is, players were having fun. As I watched all these tables and all these gems running this, it was going really well. And I think everybody, every gem felt very supported because that scenario was doing that job of getting you on your first run. And if, if the game master's already um, familiar with sort of the flow of role-playing games, sometimes the game master gets caught uh, lacking or wanting with the, of experience with sort of group storytelling. So there are games like uh, Once Upon a Time or Rory's Story Cubes mm. that help you become just a storyteller. And learn to tell stories based on prompts. So games like that, uh, the more storytelling, just sitting and telling a story one sentence at a time with mm-hmm. a group of people. And you go around the table and everyone adds, a, you know, that's part of what role-playing games are. So getting some experience doing that in a very simple way can, can be nice. And there's also a ton of like one page RPGs out there, Honey Heist and Lasers and Feelings and the Terrible RPG can help be a stepping stone between not knowing anything and being able to understand how to connect rules to stories in a in a sort of simplified way. Or even if you're, you know, as, as I used to, before my kids could play D&D, I would take their bedtime story time. And sometimes we would do a a sort of adventure and I would say, you know, tell me who you Mm -hmm. are. Are you the powerful wizard of the kingdom? Are you the fighter? Are you a cunning rogue? And they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm the wizard. Great. You know, the the queen comes in and asks you for your help uh, on an important quest, you know, Mm -hmm. to go do this thing. What, What do you what do you take with you? And just. You know, off you go, right? And that kind of just collaborative yeah. joint thing. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the, the trick is always having your kid think that you know what you're doing. <laughs> when you don't, welcome to parenting yeah. uh, and storytelling. But yeah, that's exactly. the fun of it, right? And that is actually a very good training wheels for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So sorry we didn't have a very specific recommendation for you, Selden Harry, but. Uh, that's that's about as good as we can do based on our experiences at the moment. So thank you for the question. Not now so let's far. get to our news and commentary section. No, no. Getting to our news and commentary section, starting with a very, very special anniversary-ish time. The Indy is 50 years old in 2024. What day? Historians argue. Some say it happened yesterday. We record on a on a Monday. Uh, some say it happened on the 28th of January, uh, 1974, being the first publication of the original D&D game. Others give other dates. We're going to just treat the whole year like one big special <laughs> anniversary because that's what Wizards is doing. Uh they're like, yeah, we're going to get this edition out in to celebrate the anniversary, even if we're releasing it on December 31st at 11.59 p.m. <laughs> it's the 50th anniversary. And and I'm OK with that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's two thoughts. One is, you know, on that historical side of it, John Peterson did a bunch of research. We talked about this. I forget if it was last year or the year before last, but mm-hmm. this has come up, you know, when is the birthday yeah. and 
John Peterson said it was the last Sunday in January, which would have been, you know, the 28th this month, uh, this year. Um, Shannon Applecline has a nice blog on, on his uh, designersanddragons.com, uh, dashes on either side of the end uh, website. And he talks about the, the kind of history of researching this. And more importantly, and the part that I really loved about this and, and why I think turning 50 maybe, you know, really does mean something is he really talks about how the game has evolved and all of the people who've shaped it and names them and their various advancements. And, and that really is the beauty of the fact that this game is 50 years. It's both a remarkable date that the game can be this old and be in its prime. <laughs> I say that as somebody who's mm-hmm. turned 50 already. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and just that so many people have had a hand at it, right? Any number of people we could name that are just legends for the things they've contributed to the game. And then the many people that maybe their accomplishments aren't known who have also contributed and the communities that have done that and kept the game alive and going and, and expanding. And that's the part that I think, you know, is a really nice guide for, for what to think about, not just yesterday, but, but the whole year is just what, it, you know, what does it mean for you to turn, for the game to turn 50? And, and, and what, what are all the things we're thankful for around that? I think that's a really nice guide for the year. Yeah, it is. And I'm sure as the year progresses, we will be speaking to all of those topics as we get retrospectives and and other pieces of media that talk about D&D and what turning 50 means to <laughs> games and people and so on. What D&D means to some people is virtual reality, not just in the stories that you tell, but the actual technology and resolution games has announced that it is working with wizards and Hasbro to create a licensed virtual reality game set in the D and D universe. Uh, if resolution games sounds familiar to you, it's because they have already created previously a VR based D and D inspired game called DBO. And Wizards has partnered previously with the now out-of-business VR platform Altspace VR to create a virtual reality tabletop play space. It'll be interesting to see how this all goes. Your thoughts? I remember seeing the, the in fact, it was interesting to read this story because I, I was like, what happened to that virtual reality table space that mm-hmm. I remember seeing a fun demo for? Oh, okay. It died. You know, like that's what I learned as part of this article. Uh, And it's funny because the first time I heard about this particular story was in the context of what is D&D doing? What's Wizards doing? Kind of like, you know, the outrage angle. And it's like, it's just a license to a company which may or may not be able to pull this off in some way that's really compelling for people. It's nothing wrong, right? It's like seeing a golden book on a shelf or anything else. Like, hopefully this is another thing that reaches a lot of people and gets them interested in D&D. It's, it's not the future of the game or the industry changing dramatically, at least not yet. Remember in the 80s and 90s and even 2000s where it was theorized that everything was going to be virtual reality, oh, yeah. schools every student would have a virtual reality headset and they would be learning by manipulating numbers and by doing things that they wouldn't be able to do 
in a classroom otherwise. And we all waited for our virtual reality headgear to arrive and our virtual reality entertainment to happen. And now it's 30, 40 years later, and virtual reality hasn't necessarily made a dent <laughs> in nope. the entertainment life of practically anyone. Yeah. Despite a I lot of money being spent. I don't think I've ever put on a, I don't think I've ever put on a VR headset. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, it, it's, it mm -hmm. was fine. You know, I did it at PAX. There were a couple of demos when you're at PAX that I, I tried headsets and it's fine, but it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of rigmarole. And, 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 you know, at the end, Sometimes these mm -hmm. things are more complicated than they're worth and, and you're it's not the heart of the experience. Right. And anything D&D, &D, I immediately question too much tech because the heart of the experience has never been mm -hmm. about the tech. Um, but there are other things where take, tech makes a lot of sense and, and I embrace it wholeheartedly. But for me, pen and paper games are pen and paper games. So, Yeah. What we need is a VR game where you pretend you're holding a pen and rolling dice at the table. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. See, yeah. that's why that's mm. why I'm paid the big bucks for these ideas. Just yeah. get jetpacks. Yep. So we'll we'll see. We'll keep an eye on this and see if if somehow I feel like VR is a technology waiting for a killer app. And mm. there hasn't necessarily been a killer app uh that catches fire enough to make me run down to the store to buy the VR headset and do the thing. Right. So I can't, I can't imagine that D and D will be that thing, but you never know. Yep. Uh, I, I worry about our future of two. If things get too immersive, real world is immersive. <laughs> I want to be a Luddite, but <laughs> the real world is immersive. It's great. Go out and walk in the forest, <laughs> then go home and, Roll on a table. Damn. That's what I say. Uh, rub your face on the carpet. <laughs> there you go. D&D uh, &D Beyond has given us some information on what people play. Stats for 2023. D&D uh, uh, Beyond, before it was owned by Wizards, used to share this data quite frequently. What are people's favorite classes? What are people's favorite feats and ancestries and so on and so on? Uh, they've been a little tighter with the uh, information since Wizards bought D&D uh, &D Beyond, but they're giving us this. Teos, what are your thoughts and what are some of the things that you learned when you looked at this? It's, it's almost like a joke about how people make like bad uh, graphs that, that, that you, know, you see one thing, but you're seeing another thing. And there's this graph that shows this like stepwise drop of the different ancestries species that people have chosen. And at first you might look at it and think, okay, I get it. Like humans are just over 700 K elf number two at over 500 K dragonborn at an equal drop, except wait, the number for the dragonborn is 200 K not 300. So like suddenly we've taken a different scale, but the numbers are all still equally distanced. Uh -huh. And then, then um, tiefling is next, half-elf, dwarf, halfling, half-orc. Um, so th th that was interesting that they, it's like they almost tried to obfuscate their data. 
Like, what are they worried about? I don't get it. It's really strange. And so not, it's really hard to look at these graphs and make any sense of them other than just the order that they're in and maybe a few numbers here and there. Um, it, they, they mentioned the fact that in Baldur's Gate 3, Half-Elf was most popular. And here it's, what, uh, fifth or sixth, something like that. Um, the top classes are, and, you know, and, and it's, again, things we've heard before. The human is most popular and very much so. Similarly, the fighter is the most popular class. Then it's the rogue and then the barbarian. All of these show at over 300K, so you can't tell how close or far they are. The wizard, the paladin, the warlock, cleric, the ranger, the bard, the druid. Those are the next ones in order, all over 200K. Sorcerer and monk are 100K. An artificer, just over 60K. Poor little artificer. Despite its broken little turret with 10 hit points, it still didn't get higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have silly things, you know, yeah. what are the top character names? How many people called their their character Bob? You know, different amusing things like mm-hmm. that, that that can be fun if you like that kind of thing. Uh, I would have loved better math here on some of these figures that, that people could have maybe used. But I guess that's what they were trying to prevent. And they wanted to this more of this be a light piece. But still interesting that the, the usual assumptions mm-hmm. and tropes uh, that, that we've heard before are true. Human fighter. That's uh, what people expect to play, right? We go from virtual D&D to real-life D&D? Maybe. The underground fortress of Chateau de Brazé is a real-life dungeon or real-life castle with dungeons. Uh, tell us about this, Mateus. Yeah, this was shared on our Patreon Discord, and I love it. It's an article on AmusingPlanet.com that shares pictures of a relatively small castle, less than two acres, in the famed Loire Valley of France. And the lord of the castle in the mid-16th century feared invasion and started building multiple tunnels, living spaces, storage areas, and other rooms built around the castle. And it's the kind of thing where the, the reason this was shared was because you often think, well, Fantasy D&D dungeons, these are totally made up. There's no real life parallel of this. And there are more than three kilometers of tunnels in this uh, Chateau de Brise. And they had holes and corridors for shooting attackers, a 60 foot uh, deep moat um, with all the underground areas accessible from the moat. There's these amazing pictures and schematics. And the funny thing about it is the, the castle was never attacked. Maybe because of the threat of, you know, <laughs> if you do attack, you got to deal with all of this. So don't. Yep. You can check that out at amusingplanet.com. The 50th anniversary doesn't just bring us new rules. It brings us new minis, especially minis from WizKids, because they're releasing a blind box pre-painted mini set that includes first edition and fifth edition versions of the minis. Yankee, Louth, Vecna, Lemures, Kobolds, and more, all in contrasting versions to each other. And there's also apparently a 10 secret rare chase miniature set. Um, how much does this set you back, Teos? You're the <laughs> minis lover here. It is an astounding $200. Buck $200 for a brick of eight booster boxes, which is a total of 32 minis. Each booster has one large, three medium or small minis. The boosters are 25 each. Uh, there is also a Red Dragon special mini that looks like the 1977 basic set cover. 
a mind-numbing $650 for that puppy. And someone said it's large. It can't be. It's got to be bigger than that. But I don't know. Whatever size it is, it's not enough to merit $650. The minis do look great. I mean, they, mm. they do these like, you know, like you'll have a Get the Yankee that's like 5e version and a Get the Yankee that is, you know, from the Fiend Folio version, right? And so you get these two comparisons, two Lolths, two Vecnas, and it's really very cool. So I, I love it. I absolutely want a full set. This the prices are just bonkers, but um, but it is really lovely. So there's a link there. You can see the shop.wizkids.com. You can pre-order it, or you know, after you rob a bank, I guess. Start saving up now. But before you save up, hear us out on our creator and crowdfunding corner. Uh, who are we looking at this week? We're looking at the Math of Magician, uh, backer of the show. On uh, Math of Magician's WordPress site, they look at engaging with the ritual, a cool set of pictures with very interesting encounter design tied to them. What did Math of Magician do here for us, Teos? It reminded me some of the, the wild 3D builds that uh, Penny Arcade used to share on their blog. And I forget which of the two, whether it was Mike or Jerry, that would build these things, but just, you know, like wild foam planets they'd battle on top of. And this is using styrofoam rectangles to make towers then placing grids on the tops of them so that you can move minis on them and elevation markings so you know kind of what the 3D distances are. Bridges with special ways across and then they're, you know, summoning rituals and demons on top. And he had uh, or they took yarn representing power flowing from a ritual site. And the yarn was of different colors and sort of radiate out, making a sort of puzzle of like, should you be, you know, outside the blue or outside the red or between the two? Um, So they had to sort of figure out this puzzle of the flow of energy coming out of a pit fiend conducting a ritual. (laughs) And it's a really neat uh, a visual, just that kind of thing that reminds you that, you know, sometimes players will just love it when you just do bizarre stuff like this. Very inspirational. And if you like it, they also have an article on uh, experimental system for travel and random encounters, which is also a recommended read. Awesome. We have news from Daniel Fox. We've covered before on this show the Zweihander RPG which was previously published through Andrews McMeal Publishing. When that uh, connection was severed, we didn't know what would happen with Zweihander, but Daniel seems to have regained ownership of the role-playing game and is now creating an updated version, which will be kickstarted. The Kickstarter is not live yet, but we have a link in the show notes where you can check in to uh, subscribe to be notified when it does launch. So we're wishing Daniel good luck with that project. And finally, we have Hacking Across Editions, a post on RPG.net that compares how different role-playing games handle the task of hacking computer systems. <laughs> and you looked at this, Teo, so tell yeah. me, what does this article do? Well, it's a perfect uh, segue from our VR story because it looks at how these different games compare, right? Different sort of cyberpunk type games across time and how it how long it takes to do a, you know, hacking of the system, 
um, the role of the player versus the party, um, a lot of different factors like this. And there are kind of two big things that I took away from this. One is, you know, there's this interesting look at the design approaches and how they enable good or bad play, how they separate the character out, uh, the time they take, the concepts they're emulating and that kind of thing. But second, how deeply those visions are derived from the state of computers when the game happens to be designed. So Shadowrun in 1999 and Cyberpunk's first versions, they have this whole thing with an emphasis on telephone lines. Very little, if anything, is wireless. Uh, the idea that you have to make a long distance call if you're going outside of your country, right? Um, and, and there's extra stuff to do mm -hmm. because of that. Um, heavy mainframe concept where you are moving, you know, through these different lands and, and nodes. And it's all it's all very uh, Gibson inspired from Neuromancer. Things like whether you're using up RAM, so you have to move things from your RAM to your ROM and whether disk space is being filled. Um, <laughs> and all of it is a battle through essentially a digital dungeon with IC being monsters and files as loot, right? And, and it's really interesting. The first Shadowrun, and, and they not only do they look at the rules, but they play a sample hack session with the assumption that you go on a run uh, and the Shadowrunners make it through whatever or the, 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 the team makes it through whatever the first set of things are. And then the hackers supporting them. And how does that play in the first edition run that Decker in Shadowrun is sitting back at their home. The team is the one that's on site and it takes two hours or just over two hours for the hacker to do their part of gameplay. So that's over two hours. Yeah where the rest of the party is just all the other players are just sitting there watching this happen, right? <laughs> um, Shadowrun 4th Edition is created in 2005. It assumes wireless systems and augmented reality. They do this visual stuff, not quite virtual. It's overlaid on top of what you see normally. And it kind of then in 5th Edition goes back a little more to the Neuromancer style, but with these modern elements like cloud computing. And the run time comes down to 15 to 30 minutes in fourth edition 30 minutes in fifth edition cyberpunk red similarly is around 30 to 40 minutes um, they also play the more narrative neon city overdrive rpg and the hardwired island rpg which have 15 minutes being more narrative it's a really fascinating read i enjoyed it it's, it's you know post scattered throughout this uh thread but it, it's a really fun read at both system and uh just how time has passed. <laughs> awesome. And that, folks, is our first segment on Mastering Dungeons. And now we're going to get to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons this week, a continued look at the RPG Shadow Dark. We looked originally at the basics of the game, the tone, the feel, what the game promised, what we can expect from it. Now we're going to dig deeper into the rules, including character creation and how the system works. Uh, I want to say that the designer and the force behind this game at the Arcane Library, Kelsey Dion, recently did a long chat talking about designing this game. I did not watch it. Uh, not because I wasn't interested in it, because I'm very interested in it, but because I want to read the rules as a text 
and try to come up with my own conclusions about what the game does or doesn't do. Uh, when I'm done, then I'm going to go back and see uh, Kelsey's interview to, to yeah. see how my thoughts match with her design. Um, you did watch it, though, correct? I did. Yep. I mean, All I right. can't spoil so it now. Teos may be chiming in. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, feel free, uh, because I will have already read by the yeah. time you speak. That's true. So we can, uh, we, can, we can do that. Yeah. So let's dive right in to where we left off last week, which was character creation. We, uh, we know that like with D&D, the characters are called PCs, and they are going to have a name ancestry rather than what we've been calling race uh, a class level and so on so let's let's take a look at that what are the ancestries in this book teos take it away yeah it's dwarf elf goblin half orc halfling and human and each of these is you know as simple and honed down pared down as you could think so for example the goblin you speak common you speak goblin you have keen senses, which means you can't be surprised. That is your goblin package, right? Um, and, and even the text that tells you about it is, is very, very small. So it's, it is super pared down, right? Uh, the, the, just the smallest amount of, uh, it says, green, clever beings who thrive in dark, cramped places, as fierce as they are tiny. That's everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. So... In all, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 words wow. talking about this, this uh, ancestry. Straight to the point, a, a short description, and then one cool thing. One thing they're known for, which of course here is keen senses, can't be surprised. And... A little bit about the uh, languages. So goblins know common and goblin. And right there I went, are languages going to be important in this game? <laughs> That's a good question. Because you know, you're using almost a third of the words that you need for what you're doing here to talk about what languages they know. And so as my designer brain goes, 33% of what you're talking about for this is the languages. So languages are going to be important. And so this is something I look at when I'm, when I'm reviewing. And then part of me was like, I, I don't think languages are going to be that important in this game. Uh, so why are we including it? Uh, is it worth it to do this for nostalgia and for the little tiny bit of role playing that, it will uh, provoke from players. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. We'll find out. It's hard to say. And I mean, like, uh, the but halfling, overall, I, yeah, just the, the mm -hmm. halfling knows the common language. So no additional languages and they are stealthy once per day. They can become invisible for three rounds. Right. And that's the entirety of the package. Uh, human, you get to choose an additional mm -hmm. language uh, out of the common list of languages. And you gain one additional talent roll at first level. Right? It's a very much like fifth edition uh, alternate. Um, but, you know, very, very interesting. That, that I, my guess is that this language bit is trying to 
essentially do world building, right? Rather than saying, here's everything about goblins, it's saying they are a people's. <laughs> you know, they're, they're a people that's, they, they've got right. a community of some sort. That's why they have a language moving on, right? We don't, we don't have more space to, to spend here. So that's, that's what you need to know. And this game is in theory, you know, I think with the bulk of what you read here is not about kind of big world building campaign integration. It's more about dungeon delving. So then we don't need to maybe know that much about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, unless you, you're coming across creatures that you Part of the fun of role-playing games it are those situations where you need to communicate with something, but you can't. Right. Um, but even then, that only carries a little bit of fun, a little bit of weight, because it becomes a burden if you try to do it again and again and again. So it's just it's interesting for me to look at what has this game pared down and what has it left in and why? Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's one thing. And you know, point taken on the world building. Uh, you know, halflings, I didn't even realize that, but halflings don't have their own language, but yeah. goblins do. Uh, so yeah, what does that sure. tell us? I don't know. Yeah, and there are mm-hmm. only 10 common languages in the game. Um, the only ones that might be a little mm-hmm. surprising, there's a Marin, which is sort of like aquatic creatures. There is a reptilian, lizard folks, and viparians. There is a thanian, which is minotaurs, beastmen, manacores. Um, otherwise, it's, you know, the ones you might expand, there's giant, there's sylvan, you know, everything else is just kind of common ancestry ones. And then there are just four rare languages, celestial, diabolic, draconic, primordial. So w- one would, I guess, mm-hmm. think that one would run into a lot of things to talk to, and if you have a diverse set of characters you'd probably be able to talk to most of them maybe i don't know mm-hmm. interesting question we will continue to read the game to find out well covering the ancestries we now know what comes next and that are the classes which of we have four we have the fighter we have the priest we have the thief and you know it we have the wizard <laughs> I have a feeling that there is room for expansion here uh, and that we will see other classes if we haven't already, either homebrewed or published by the Arcane Library. But as with the races, the classes are quite stripped down. We get a brief description going, starting with the fighter, we get a brief description, blood slope gladiators, acrobatic duelists, far-eyed elven archers, etc. Um, weapons, they're proficient with all weapons. Armor, they're proficient with all armor and shields. Hit points, 1d8 per level. And then just a f- couple of um, powers that each class has. Um, a hauler lets you add your constitution modifier, if positive, to your number of gear slots. So you're going to be able to carry more, and you need to be able to carry more because armor is going to take up more slots than uh, a normal piece of equipment might. Uh, Weapon mastery, you choose a type of weapon, such as a longsword. You gain a plus one attack and damage with that weapon type. Additionally, you add half 
uh, your level to these rolls, rounding down. Um, now, this game goes to level 10, so at the highest level, you're going to be at plus 5. Yeah, pretty good. And, and, and I guess plus 6 total, so yeah. that's pretty sweet. The, yep. And then grit, you choose either strength or dex, and you have advantage on checks of that type to overcome opposing forces, such as kicking down a door or slipping free of rusty chains. The first being a strength check, the second being a dexterity check. So it gives you that little bit of bonus for things other than straight up fighting. And then uh, another talent, which you don't choose, but you roll. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So on your odd levels, you get to roll dice on a table, 2d6, and you get the one that you rolled. So this might be another weapon mastery. It might be plus one to attacks. It could be plus two to strength, con, or dex, your choice. Plus one to armor class from one armor type, or plus two points to any stats, which is a common talent you'll see for these classes. So, you know, I've heard, interestingly, one of the comments on one of our, on our, on our previous episode was that, you know, these talents are something their players really are excited about. And I was kind of surprised by that because it's a, it's a very light piece, but I think this is a light enough game that rolling on the table probably is pretty exciting across a campaign. You know, I've not played a campaign where I got the level I've played, but this game, but I haven't campaigned. And so, yeah, maybe it's simple enough that when you buy into it, you go, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to get talent and see what I happen to come up with. And the chart, so you understand, is one of those bell curve charts so a 2 or a 12 are very specific things, whereas a 3 to 6 or an 11 to 10 are you know less likely to come up. And then the 7 to 9 is probably the most likely to come up. And that's what gives you plus 2 to strength, dex, or constitution. Yeah. I don't remember from previous uh, our previous looks, can your uh, attributes mm. go up? Are they capped? It, it the the stats page shows eighteen plus is plus four. So I would presume that if you get that high, you you know there's nothing telling you that you can go higher. It's not like D and D where it shows it going up to okay. thirty. So my guess is it's capped okay. at eighteen, from what I see here. But that's a okay. great example of something that that's it doesn't talk then. about. It doesn't really say. Right. Yeah. And so assuming that you roll the average every time at first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth, so five times you get to roll on this talent chart, at least if you, you know, make it up to a ninth level fighter, um, you could be adding plus two, five times to those attributes. So it's, it's sort of important to realize that. Mm -hmm. um, now you're likely to, more likely to be start starting with a lower attribute than you might for D&D. For D&D, if you're a strength-based fighter, you're probably starting with a 16 in that mm -hmm. area. When you're rolling the way you roll here, there might be a chance that you aren't starting with a 16 or higher. Right. Um, so there is more space to build that up. Did anything stand out for you with any of the other classes? 
Teos. I mean, it's interesting to compare the spell casting classes, the wizard or the um, priest. The wizard, you know, no armor, dagger, staff, hit points 1d4 per level. You get some common and, langu- and additional rare languages. So, so that is a help, right, with that kind of idea of, of, of speaking. You could, if you plan it out with the rest of the party, you could probably cover a lot of, of languages this way. Uh, you can learn spells from scroll and you make a check to, to get that and add to your known spells. So it is that sort of spell book concept. You know, three tier one wizard spells and each level you choose new spells based on a table. Um, the we'll talk about magic later, which is its own unique thing. So, you know, the wizard sort of gets less compared to, you know, the fighter that had weapon mastery and grit uh, holler. You know, you're really getting. I can learn from spells and I have spell casting because of the power of spells. Is that balanced? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't played enough to know. Uh, I thought my spells were pretty powerful when I played um, more powerful. That's hard to say, um, especially when the mm-hmm. fighter is getting, you know, maybe plus six to attack at higher levels. You know, does that beat out my spells, which I may or may not be able to pull off? Good question. I don't know. Um, the talent examples are kind of cool. Like you can make a random magic item of a type you choose. That's the one that's really rare. Um, plus two to your int stat or plus one to wizard spell casting checks, which is really important. Uh, gain advantage on casting one spell you know. Learn one additional spell of any tier you know. And then the whole plus two points to stats. The rogue is interesting because it doesn't, or the thief, I should say, uh, it does not really have a whole lot it has the backstab if the creature is unaware of your attack so we get to that whole like interpretation right it's not just flanking or adjacent or anything like that it's they have to be unaware of you um you deal an extra weapon die of damage and add additional weapon dice equal to half your level um then thievery is you have the necessary tools of the trade and adept at thieving skills. You're trained in the following tasks. And this is a game without skills. You're trained in the following tasks mm-hmm. and have advantage on any associated checks. Climbing, sneaking, hiding, applying disguises, finding and disabling traps, delicate tasks such as picking pockets and opening locks. So it's sort of the things you would expect. But in a game without skills, we're sort of saying these kinds of things. Hey, you're trained at them, right? So it's, it's an interesting mm-hmm. way to balance it out. Right. Yep. And unlike the previous uh, editions of D&D, the earliest editions, which we've talked about before, where rogues or thieves got the ability to do these things at a percentage, which led the other players to say, well, can't I climb walls? Can't <laughs> I do do these things? How come the rogue is the only one that can? This doesn't do that because it doesn't say other people can't climb, can't sneak, can't hide, can't disable traps. It says you have advantage on those associated checks. So that uh, makes makes up for that previous edition uh, fallacy that other people couldn't do the thing that <laughs> you were given permission to do. Right. Though it is also, I mean, you know, there's a reason why D&D is more complicated, and that is that, you know, the rogue will often try to put themselves into an advantageous situation, as all characters will, and then they get advantage plus all the benefits of their training and expertise and so on. If you put yourself into Mm -hmm. an advantageous situation in Shadow Dark, well, you already have advantage. 
So you're gaining no benefit because mm-hmm. advantage won't, you know, stack beyond itself. So th- there is that limit to it, right? And and maybe that's because well we're in a simpler game, so we don't need to, you know, do too much. But it it is worth noting that that's that kind of thing that can put a little bit of a cap on how much creativity you need when the thief player just goes, well, I, I I've got advantage. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that advantage does not carry over to the combat section where it is going to be a conversation or the the thief player will have to try to put themselves into an advantageous position to get that backstab. Um, As Teo said, it's not just you're flanking or, you know, you have an ally next to a creature. So therefore you get your extra special damage. Um, so that 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 is very yeah. interesting. Um, the one of the thieves' talents is your backstab deals plus one dice of damage. So if you roll that each time that you uh, get an additional talent, <laughs> you could have up to five extra dice of damage when you uh, backstab. Which you know, which then boy, would you want to try to milk that right? You'd want to try to get you know, and mm-hmm. I love it. I like it. I both like and, and and it makes me curious when I read it. The word isn't hidden, but unaware, right? So that is very interesting. Yes. You know, the goblin is unaware of you. That is an interesting word to play yeah. with and, and could have table variants, right? Which is kind of neat. And then maybe that's fine, but it, it is yeah. what it is. And it doesn't say unaware of you. It says unaware <laughs> of your attack. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. you could be standing there right in front of it, but if it yes. doesn't know that you're attacking, yeah. then so there's more table mm-hmm. variants there. Yeah, yeah. Depending on the situation and definitions and what right. the game master, what the yeah. other players and what the player of the thief want or expect. I duck behind the pillar when I next go to attack. Are you unaware of my attack? Or, you know, someone might say, duh, you're behind the pillar. I know you're going to attack me. Right. Or we're in a tavern and we're talking and I turn around to grab the drinks off the bar and you attack me. Is that unaware of the attack? Yeah. Now, it does allow for ranged. It doesn't say it has to be melee or anything like that. There's that. True. Yeah. Interesting. And let's let's talk quickly about the priest. Uh, who like uh, the game that this game is borrowing from is a crusading Templar, prophetic shaman, or mad-eyed zealot using the power of the gods to cleanse the unholy. Um, Unlike some additions, they can use edged weapons like longswords, daggers, crossbows. They're proficient with all armor and shields. They uh, know celestial, diabolic, or primordial languages. They can turn undead, uh, and they have spellcasting similar to, but not exactly like a wizard. I played a priest. And And turn undead here is a spell, not an ability. So this is my uh, character card that I got from Kelsey when I played Shadow Dark, and, you know, on the back, it's very similar to like D&D Encounters had for fourth edition, just a single card with all of my info there. 
um, and an image on the other side. And so you can see, you know, how simple a character is. You know, very little to it, which is kind of cool. And uh, I got to play that priest. Is that a first level character? Uh, this was, was I zero or level one. I'm plus zero. To, I'm level one. Plus zero to attacks. Uh, I have cure wounds, shield of faith, turn undead. And, uh, you know, that's it. <laughs> I can crossbow or mace okay. something at plus zero to attack. But I had a lot of fun. Yeah, no, that's 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 cool. We'll get to magic in a bit, but there are a few more bits for your character. One being a background, which is handled on one page. Uh, it just says your background knowledge may prove useful. Work with your game master to determine if your background provides advantages in a given situation. And we have a table with 20 backgrounds. From urchin to noble to minstrel to barbarian, these are from five to 10 words <laughs> that you are given. So urchin says you grew up in the merciless streets of a large city. And that's it. So it reminded me a lot of the aspects in Fate or other similar games where you just have a phrase that's true about yourself and you have to decide along with the game master and the other players if that means anything in this game. Yeah, yeah, it's totally that kind of creativity prompt and uh, you can try to push for it, which I, I like this kind of thing a lot, right? I, I like one unique thing. I prefer mm -hmm. to make it up. Um, it, um, you know, it doesn't say this is a guideline, you know, like this is, this is the phrase you get. Um, whereas I would like this to be an example guidelines to encourage me to come up with something similar, but that might, you know, be a little more applicable. But then again, this is a character that could easily die. So maybe you don't want to invest that much into your character yet. We also get to choose an alignment, which defines your role in the clash of good versus evil. Um, all creatures are connected to the eternal conflict wage between law, chaos, and neutrality, whether they know it or not. Law is benevolence, chaos is malevolence, and neutrality is impartial, favoring neither. So you can be one of those three, chaotic, lawful, or neutral. Yeah, how, how do you feel, you don't Sean, get anything about... More you know, removing good and evil from it. Like, what do you, what do you think of as a designer I'm, with that? I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it because for me, alignment as it is used in D and D is obsolete technology mm. uh, that never really does anything that adds to the game in a way that is pleasing to me. Um, it is, much better to give me some traits some mm -hmm. some of these background traits or personality traits than it is to just slap a tag on something and yeah. and try to make it mean more than it does yeah that's fair and maybe streamlining it like this it makes it a little easier to just orient the world and and move on yeah mm -hmm. yeah could the game have just said good evil and neutral possibly mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I think even the philosophical arguments about good and evil 
effects can overwhelm people's understanding and enjoyment of the game. So I'm actually fine with going lawful chaos and neutral as they are defined as malevolent, benevolent, and uh, in between. Yeah, and it goes back to the roots of the game too. Um, the deities section plays mm-hmm. off of this further. So it has a number, a few gods, really just a few that it lists in the deities section. And those are come with, you know, the tag of being lawful or neutral or chaotic. And, um, and we're told that Priests have to choose one god to serve faithfully. The priest can revoke the gift of spellcasting if you commit blasphemous acts. Uh, I certainly came to close to that in my game, as I was tempted by another deity or force or something entity. Um, Most folk worship one of the Mm -hmm. four lords, the lawful neutral gods. If you're evil, you probably worship a member of the dark trio. Um, And there are originally nine. We get a little world building. Two are the lost, forbidden, or forgotten. Uh, but many folks will st- still say things like beneath the eyes of the nine, referring to all nine of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm cool with this. I don't think the game or the world, at least in my reading so far, has called for there to be any more than this. Yeah. Well, then, you know... It's interesting then the game leans in further, right? Because we're like, okay, deity, sure, that makes sense. That plays off alignment. And we go to the next thing, which is titles. And those play off of alignment. And I thought this was a really interesting Mm -hmm. sort of world building kind of stand in. So you, as you gain levels, gain a title. And this is very old school, right? Like AD&D would have the name of your title. What people would refer to you as, you know, a foot pad or whatever is when you're rogue. Mm -hmm. This does the same. But it does so in columns by alignment. So when you're in a level one to two thief, you are a footpad if you're lawful, a thug if you're chaotic, and a robber if you're neutral. That's so interesting to distinguish this in that manner, which suggests that these have meaning to society at large, right? That, oh yeah, they're a channeler, and we would, I guess, know that they are a chaotic wizard, you know, level three to four. I thought that was really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I I looked at this and I thought nostalgia or something really, really useful. And it could be made to be useful for sure. As you say, by if these titles are what you are referred to by mm-hmm. as enemies talk about you or as allies talk about you or yeah. as you know the city watch understands you uh but if it's not going to be used that way <laughs> i'm just as fine tossing them out uh yeah. and you know it, it can be fun the first time to oh i am a reaver now because i'm a chaotic fighter of seventh and eighth level but then it's just like oh well okay i just want to be bob the fighter uh, so I'm not going to ever refer to this chart again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so one thing is the next part that comes up, which is starting gear, this, you have mm-hmm. a table and a roll. So as far as I can tell, okay. So yeah, we're well, sorry. When you're zero level, you must roll. That's what it is. Zero level. Mm-hmm. You roll right. 
1d4, that's how many items you get, and then you roll d12 to see which items those are. So it could be old daggers, or it could be, you know, a torch and a crowbar. When you're first level, you get gold pieces, a random amount, and now you can buy gear from the full list mm-hmm. of gear. Um, armor class is yeah. calculated the way you might expect if you've played 5th edition. Um, I think the big thing about gear is the fact that it has gear slots. Um, I think in general, the gear is made to be useful and more evocative and play. You know, we've got the 10 foot pole in a game that's dangerous. That becomes, again, more important. Um, the torch is, of course, very important, though at this point we haven't quite heard why. Um, but, but at least we've been told that. <laughs> and it burns for an hour of real time. Mm-hmm. Um, and gear slots is the number of items equal to your strength stat or 10 whichever is higher and it, it you know it may not be immediately obvious but it it fills up really quickly um if you get what's called a crawling kit which costs seven gold that uses seven gear slots and that gives you backpack flint steel torch rations iron spikes grappling hook and 60 feet of rope if you have a strength of 10 you know you would or, or lower you would only get three empty spots to carry the loot which is how you're going to level up right yeah that doesn't include weapons or so armor. you're a 10 strength rogue yeah or armor 10 strength rogue if you want armor a melee weapon and a missile weapon there's a good chance now that you all your slots are used up if you have this crawling kit uh, and in order to rest little sneak preview you need rations yeah now, uh, three rations take up one slot but if Unless you're able to find rations along the way, you only have three rests worth. And that's if you are able to successfully rest. If your rest is interrupted, you have to use more rations than uh, you normally would in order to get that full rest. So you're already balancing out what you can bring. You're going to need torches. You're going to need uh, rations. So plan carefully. It, it is really interesting because, you know, you, when you often think of like, you know, fifth edition, you'll sit there with the table and go like, oh, you know, I'll use a great axe. That's great. And you're like, oh, great axe. Two slots. Oh, you know, do I want that for, you know, to deal D10 damage? Maybe I should go down to something else that just uses a single slot, right? Comes a tough mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's I I like this. I like the simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it fits well with this game. Yeah. If this was tried to be used in a more complex game, that wasn't sort of shorthanding some things. I wouldn't like it, but I think it fits very well for what the game is trying to do. I agree with you. And one of the nice things about that video was it talked about that you did not watch. It, it talked about um, the, all of these different subsystems. They appear kind of elsewhere in some form or another. Right. So Nave has equipment slots and some other games have that. And Four Torches Deep has, has some torch concepts. And, and a lot of these sort of OSR, OSE type games will have some of these aspects but what i find when i read shadow dark as opposed to reading those other games is shadow dark is the game where they all 
to me feel like they cohesively weave together uh, and not in a way that intrude upon one another or that make me feel like it's almost like a gimmick where I like something's going to go, you know, like the play is about this almost like board game like and it's going to intrude upon the other things I like about a role playing game experience. So so it was interesting in that in that video, Kelsey says, I don't think she says something. I don't know the exact quote, but something like none of the things in this game are an original thought of mine. Right. Which is a very humble thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she's acknowledging, you know, I'm, I'm using a lot of great ideas that I've been playing with and playtesting in my games as I pull all these things together. This is how I like that mix. But and, and maybe we could say the beauty of this game is how she has distilled that mix together, right, including fifth edition down into mm-hmm. these pieces such that they don't intrude upon another the way I, I personally find they do in other games. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can't argue with any of that. Uh, seems reasonable and quite astute. Well, thank you. Next we hear, oh, next week I was, I was complimenting Kelson at you. Oh, thank um, goodness. We, we, yes, we get a table of names, uh, one to 20, for dwarf, elf, goblin, halfling, half orc, and humans. So, as you, as your first level or even zero level characters die, you can, uh, you know, roll a seventeen, and you are a half orc, so you are Ibarra. Uh, congratulations. Then uh-huh. we get to leveling. Uh, leveling, interesting. We are going to use experience points. They represent your learning, your influence, and your increasing skill. To gain a level, you need to gain 10 times your current level of experience points. Mm -hmm. So if you're first level, you need 10 experience points to go to second level. Once you level, your XP resets back to zero. So from first to second level is 10. From ninth to 10th level is 100. 10 times the level uh, you want well, to get to from, from nine to 10, yeah, yeah is 90. So uh, you need 90 resetting to zero after you go from eight to nine. Uh, we'll talk later about the ways that you can gain experience points, which is an interesting, uh, which is an interesting thing. When you gain a level, you also gain one roll on your class's talent table at the indicated levels. And if you roll the same talent twice, you stack them. You also increase your hit points uh, when you increase in levels. Any other thoughts on XP just as a basic uh, thing here before we jump in later into how you get those yeah i mean i I think that you know we've mentioned you know spoiler for ahead that that you know it has to do with loot and i think it's interesting that here it doesn't Mm -hmm. tell you kind of that and so if you are familiar with other games or even if you aren't you, you kind of have no basis for what this means right you know will i role play will i slay monsters will i disarm trap traps you know Nope, none of those. <laughs> you will gain loot. And, and that is an interesting piece, both for the players and the DM, that 
is not established here. It's a good example of where the game is not talking to you about the gameplay at this moment, despite how incredibly important it is to the game, right? It's not, it's not coloring this as this is a game where you will try to gain treasure. When you gain enough, you're going to level mm. your GM has rules. Here are your tables, you know, so you can track this. Um, mm. But also what it does by having the system is it says, you know, we're not going with milestone XP and we're not going with, you know, when you mm-hmm. uh, it's not quest XP for completing a, you know, finishing the module or slaying the demon, stopping the ritual mm-hmm. like this is this is that changes what the game's like. So it's, it's hugely important and yet not at all evident from this page, I would say, which is fine. But that's just right. The approach taken, right? Yeah. No extra words are being spent here. You know, this is all of your XP to players mm-hmm. is done in one page, <laughs> which is a very yep. small book, right? It's amazing because it's, it's a novel sized page with large font. And that is your whole XP system. If you asked me to spend one, these, this many words on an XP system, I don't know what I'd come up with, but it would have to be, you know, I, I, I would probably spend just, I don't know how long my whole life would be. <laughs> dedicated because i'm that is my weakness like my kryptonite is writing things briefly and it's amazing how well this works right and part of the way it does it is by not saying a lot right now mm-hmm. right and then what we will look at later is where could there have been words spent to codify something a bit more to make it understood better or make it work as a game better yeah. Uh, so that'll be down the road. Do we tackle magic now or do we wait? Uh, your choice, my friend. Good either way. Let's do it. Let's go. Right. We're going to tackle magic right now. So oh, magic oh, in this magic. game is. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> magic and it costs you your action to cast a spell. You must have the spellcasting talent to do so, either as a priest or a wizard in the basic rules of the game. And rather than trying to overcome some something about your target, spellcasting in this game is making a spellcasting check. So you roll a d20 and you add your attribute, which is wisdom to for priests or intelligence for wizards. You're asking that adding that modifier to it. And you must succeed on a DC based on the tier of the spell you're casting. So a level one or a, a tier one spell, the, the lowest level spell, it would be an 11. So you'd need to get an 11 or higher to successfully cast the spell. It's not dependent on anything on the creature side. Which is interesting. It is very much unlike a lot of things that we've seen in D&D type games. If your check succeeds, the spell works. If your check fails, the spell does not take effect. And, yes, there's an and. Not only does nothing good happen on your side, you cannot cast that spell again until you complete a rest. Yes. Well, it, it's a fascinating part of the design because uh, like in our game, uh, which Kelsey was the DM for at Game Hulk Con, uh, one of the players or, you know, their first time that they cast, 
they botch the roll, which is easy to do, right? It's a D20, uh, you know, and you think, oh, it'll be so easy to hit that 11. And then you roll, you know, a five and you look at your modifier and you go, well, that doesn't do it. Um, and, and these are pretty good characters. Like my character has a 17 wisdom. That's really strong. So I'm plus three to my roll. Still means that I need to get an eight or higher, right? And that's a fair amount of, of possibility, but you could easily have a 14 in that best skill uh, attribute score. And now you're at, you know, at a plus two and you, you, you know, it gets harder and harder. And, and so what happened with this player is, yeah, they, they failed the spell. Uh, a couple of things can happen as we'll talk about, but one of them is you now don't get to cast that spell anymore. So it's like an at will spell until it isn't because you failed the roll and now your action was wasted and possibly more. Which is interesting in the sense that you are going to fail a lot compared <laughs> to other games that we might be used to. Yeah. And if you roll a one on the check, even worse things happen. Mm -hmm. For wizards, there's a roll on the mishap table. So a piece of equipment you own might disappear. I hope it's not your, uh, your, your wand. <laughs> and if you're a priest, you not only can't cast that spell until you rest, you also can't cast it until you perform ritualistic penance, <laughs> like a holy quest or ritual atonement or a material sacrifice. Yeah. However, if you roll a crit, you are allowed to double one of the spell's numerical effects. One would imagine without seeing the spells that that might be double the dice that you roll for damage or double the duration of the spell or double something, some other numerical uh, representation, which I thought was really clever, but also very problematic unless you very carefully vet all your spells to make sure there's none where doubling a numerical effect on it could be out of control. Yeah. So and that that's where my or, designer mind went. Or useless, right? So like I just opened a random page in the spell section and here are silence and sleep. Yeah. Both of them have no numeric effect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and uh, not even not even duration. Nope. Because it's focus for silence mm -hmm. and um so you'd have to adjudicate something if you want to, uh, because there is nothing here. And in fact, a lot of the spells on this page, I think only one of them has a numeric effect on this particular page. And, it, you know, that might not be true if I go to the next page. But uh, so, yeah, it's that kind of thing where right. it's a fun concept. But, you know, yeah, what do you do? Right. Uh, and they're, they're, we're not spending a lot of time on guidance here. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the designer in me loves this, that it can really change the way a player has to approach the game. It cannot just be, I'm going to step back and cast the same spell over and over and over again because there's the chance I'm going to lose that spell. So I need to think on my feet. Absolutely love that. Games like this where something quite powerfully bad can happen fairly easily generally has a system in place where you can buy off mm -hmm. that 
bad effect with some sort of in-game currency, not gold, but some sort of mechanical currency. In this case, as we will talk about later, you have something called a luck token that you can get and re-roll, um, yep. which is, I think, necessary. The other thing is when we looked at the talents for the wizard, one of the things was you have advantage with certain spells. So right there, your chances of losing that spell that you choose goes down dramatically once you have advantage. Um, so it sort of, the, the game system itself works to minimize what seems like a pretty drastic uh, negative effect of not succeeding. Yeah, though, I would say, and I mean, you're saying this too, it, it does so in a way that's a little erratic, right? It'll depend on implementation, depend on whether your GM is awarding you luck, depend on whether you can mm -hmm. take those mitigating features, happen to roll for that talent, right? And so it could also be that the opposite happens. You know, I've got my priest who can cast Cure Wounds and Shield of Faith. Maybe my first two attempts to those botch. And all I'm left with is turn undead. And if there are no undead in this adventure, well, all I'm doing is attacking at plus zero with my mace and my crossbow. That's all I'm, I've got, right? For as long as our session goes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, because I'm a priest, I now need to atone. And I'm a starting character. I may not have the gold to atone properly. So, you know, who knows, right? Now, a clever GM, yep. they will do things like maybe offer me a deal mm -hmm. with a powerful entity in exchange for refreshing one of my spells or something like that. And that's totally great, but it's not based on words in this book. <laughs> that's that's true. And that is always one of the joys and or frustrations of games that do rely on this. And we'll talk about this a lot more next time is the experience with a great GM can be great, and the experience with a less than great GM can be less than great. Yeah. Uh, so it's always important to recognize that in a game or you know, any activity where it relies on that sort of understanding and imagination and group uh, empathy for... Yeah. The, the table and all the players as a whole. Yeah, and along those lines, Sean, so scrolls and wands are one of the ways that you as GM could try to maybe help with this, right? So you mm -hmm. could give your spellcasters some scrolls that they could use to supplement for those times when they uh, hit upon bad luck. Scrolls and wands also require spellcaster checks. So you could be that you give someone mm -hmm. a scroll and then they spend their action failing on it. Um, the scroll is used up either way, whether it succeeds or fails. Uh, the wand, if you fail, you can't use it until you rest. Crits still cause a mishap and the wand breaks or the scroll is used up. So, you know, you can help a bit with that. But boy, a character that likes to roll the way I like to roll or a player that rolls that way, uh, you know, well, hmm. you know, bad luck will find you and, and <laughs> hurt you. Um, and there's yeah. also a system for concentration, which I thought was interesting, Sean. Yeah, it's called focus. So if it's a spell that lasts for longer than a round, it may have a focus uh, tag to it, which means you have to continue to make checks. It doesn't just remain in effect. At the start of your turn, if you want to maintain focus, you have to make a new check. 
If you fail, it ends it. And you always have that chance to roll either a 20 or a one to get a critical uh, success or a, you know, a bad thing happening uh, as you try to focus on it. Yeah. And if you take damage or you become distracted, the GM can say, make a focus check uh, as well. So there is that sort of peril a bit of the focus system that, that this could go wrong if you're unlucky. Yep. And spells uh, have tiers as opposed to levels. So tiers one through five um, makes sense. Those of you who play D&D will recognize some of the spells or, you know, some of the tier levels matches. Uh, there are some new spells such as Pillar of Salt, which can turn enemies into hardened salt statues if you are able to successfully focus for three rounds. So you, without looking at the monsters and know what they can do, this shows you that sort of power that can come with a magic using character in this game. Yeah. And did you say the word if permanent? If they roll poorly. Yes. Permanent. Yeah, Cause that's the part that so, I, mean, yeah. I was like, Oh You're, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and to me, this harkens back to the earliest days of D&D, when at low levels, wizards and other magic users were very, very squishy. And by high levels, they were dominating everything. This sort of does the same thing, but in a different way, by not having saving throws that creatures can make. So you can walk up, unless the monster has a particular ability that stops this from happening you can walk up to a very powerful monster and if you can focus for three rounds they are permanently turned to salt and they can't stop it yeah however being able to focus for those three rounds without losing focus by making a poor check or by getting attacked is a whole other thing that the game master will need to be aware of uh, so it's I would, I like the idea. I would need to play mm -hmm. a lot of it to yeah. figure out if the balance is there that I think this rule or these rules are going for. Right. Um, but I want to say off the top, I like it. I like the chaos of it because this whole game is going to be chaotic in that way. Yeah. It, it's really interesting. Powered kill is a tier five wizard spell. Uh, range near, mm -hmm. you utter the word of doom. One creature you target of level nine or less dies if it hears you. Treat a failed spell casting check for this spell as a critical failure and roll the mishap with disadvantage. <laughs> so it's I got this mm -hmm. double edge, right? It's got a little bit of extra danger to it when yeah. you roll, when you when you cast power yeah. killer. Right? It's not to be used lightly because it can, you need a way to maybe mitigate this failure because of that, right? Like, it's interesting. It, it was interesting to me, given the nature of the game, and this is the kind of thing where I wish there were more words helping me, because I'm feeling it's very dungeon, and then I get the plane shift spell. And I think, whoa, what do I do with that? Where do I go? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and yeah, obviously I can weave that into an adventure, but, but the game itself is not telling me what to really do with that spell that I wouldn't do with teleport, right? Because plane shift is a whole nother thing beyond that. But for that, I need yeah. to know so much more. I, I thought it was very interesting that there are some spells in here that are like that. And it's not the only one where it, it hints at a much larger game, 
than what I would guess from what I'm reading. Yeah. And I noted that as well. And I can't wait to read more so I can tell if this game, if the rules inform a world like they would inform a story using those rules. Yeah. And uh, we'll find out more next time when we get into the gameplay section of Shadow Dark. I want to thank you, Teos, for sharing your expertise with us as always. And I want to thank everyone out there for listening. We have some supporters who help us by supporting our Patreon. We want to thank them for helping us keep up our energy, keep up our technology, and make this show happen. So thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. Our Master of Realm supporters get a shout out in our show notes. And our Masters of the Multiverse, well, here we go with them. Chris Webster, Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Trace. Krishna Simonse, Andy Shockney, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Robert Pasley, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Mighty Zeus, Mike Olson, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, aka DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Moment of Silence for the Lions, Chad Jackson, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, The Mighty Jerd, Nathan Fuller, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you so much for your support. You, yes, you could help us out by becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can also support us by leaving us a review by whatever means you listen to this podcast. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which would help us out immensely. Teos, where are you and what have you been up to on the interweb? Ooh, if you want to hear me uh, be perplexed, my latest video on the Spelljammer Neverwinter MMO is all about their orc versus elf storyline. And whatever you want to imagine that's horrid. It is horrid. (laughs) So it's literally the first video I've had where I could just make an amazed face and put it on the thumbnail because I was amazed Mm -hmm. at whatever team came up with this storyline that is so bad and so tropish. Uh, So that's my most recent endeavor. But you can get to all of it from alphastream.org for all your elf versus orc horribleness. Okay. And you can find me on Twitter or uh, Blue Sky or Mastodon, all at Sean Merwin in one way or another. And at Mastering D&D is also out there on all of those social media platforms. Join our community and you can talk to us via our uh, Discord if you join uh, the Patreon. Or you can go to the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Teos. We are about to go deep into the shadow dark. What are we going to do now? Uh, I'm going to light a torch and go finish watching that uh, awesome Ghostfire Gaming uh, YouTube that I just started watching today. I saw you post about it on Mastodon. Uh, ben Burns creating all this yeah. excitement for everything that's coming from Ghostfire. So I'm going to go finish watching that. How about you, Sean? Yeah, I am going to go take a long rest because I am all out of spells. 